Welcome back to iGen Politics. This is a podcast that makes politics engaging and relevant for all generations. This is Victor Shi. I'm currently a sophomore at UCLA, was elected as the youngest delegate for Joe Biden, and also co-hosts his podcast. And I'm Jill Wine-Banks, the author of The Watergate Girl, based on my experience prosecuting the Watergate obstruction of justice case. I also co-host Hashtag Sisters-in-Law, another wonderful podcast. As we're seeing in Russia, fake news and propaganda can have extremely detrimental consequences in society. Vladimir Putin has broadcast propaganda and cut off all other sources of the truth, so he now has a higher approval rating than before he invaded Ukraine. But disinformation isn't unique to Russia or other authoritarian countries. It's present in America. Cable news anchors like Tucker Carlson and Sean Hannity spew blatant falsehoods about everything from the COVID-19 pandemic to the invasion of Ukraine. Elected officials, former elected officials, and their followers use social media and other platforms to spread dangerous lies. These are problems that we must solve if we want to keep our republic, to quote Benjamin Franklin. Our guest today has spoken on the rise of disinformation and is on the front lines of trying to change the way in which news is presented in America to enhance truthfulness and accuracy. She is Soledad O'Brien, currently the host of Matter of Fact with Soledad O'Brien a nationally syndicated weekly talk show produced by Hearst Television. And I was fortunate to be interviewed by her early in the Trump administration. Soledad is also the founder and current chairwoman of Starfish Media Group, a multi-platform media production company. That is why today's hashtag Jill's Pin is a starfish. Soledad has had an extensive and diverse career in television news starting in the 90s, and she has gone on to become an anchor at MSNBC's The Site and of NBC's Weekend Today. It was a news program, and she also co-authored CNN's American Morning and their morning news program, Starting Point, as well as being a frequent reporter and analyst uh, for that channel. She also anchored the CNN documentary unit where she created the In America series, Black in America and Latino in America. O'Brien was recognized with three Emmy Awards for her coverage of the Haiti earthquake, the 2012 election, and a series called Kids and Race. She was also honored twice with the George Foster Peabody Award for her coverage of Hurricane Katrina and her reporting on the BP Gulf Coast oil spill, and won an Alfred DuPont Award for CNN by her reporting on the Southeast Asia tsunami. In 2013, Soledad became a special correspondent on the Al Jazeera news program, America Tonight, and founded Soledad O'Brien Productions, where she continued to produce documentaries and series on topics that included youth incarceration, police brutality, veterans with PTSD, and the opioid epidemic. O'Brien also hosted American Injustice on BET, Shining a Light, Conversations on Race and America on A&E, and is the author of two books, first, The Next Big Story, and second, Latino in America. In the wake of Hurricane Katrina, O'Brien and her husband Brad created the powerful foundation to help young women get to and through college. We could go on at even greater length, but let's stop here and welcome Soledad. Thank you, Soledad, for being with us today. Thank you for having me. 
Okay, so you were born and raised in a small town on the North Shore of Long Island, New York. Um, your parents were both immigrants. Your father is Irish Australian, um, and your mother is Afro Cuban. That's uh, like they- my life story <laughs> in under thirteen seconds. <laughs> We've got so much more. Yes. But they met in Maryland at Johns Hopkins University, and mm-hmm. um, as busy students, but married in Washington D.C. Um, because of um, interracial marriage being illegal in Maryland. Um, you've talked about the hostilities they endured as an interracial couple, and about your old sister is being born under anti-miscegenation laws. Can you talk a little bit about how that shaped your worldview and whether it influenced your choice of documentary topics now, like yeah. those dealing with racial issues? Yeah, you know, it's funny. I'll answer the second part first, which is I, I think so. I don't think you know that it's shaped your worldview until you one day kind of look and think like, wow, this is so interesting to me. And so I, I do think my parents both being children of kind of the depression area era they you know they didn't back in the day people didn't like blog and vlog about their deep you know feeling like you you know if something was difficult you just kind of kept a stiff upper lip and you just didn't talk about it to get my parents to share about their experience in an interracial marriage when i was writing my memoir in 2010 was literally like pulling teeth like you would have thought you know um they just it, it just was not their way they just didn't really talk about it a lot but i do think certainly growing up in a community that was not racially diverse and then kind of experiences that I had mostly good, but as a reporter early on where you could see the hierarchy of the stories that mattered and the stories that generally did not matter were community stories. Read, you know, brown and black people, you know, uh, health centers opening, things that I, I look back now and think those are actually really important to the integrity, if you will, of a community, right? Like how a community holds together. But they, in the newsroom, didn't, in early in my career, just didn't have a lot of value. And so I think it did shape for me kind of my parents' experiences, partly because we just had a different upbringing. You know, we just had a different upbringing. I always thought like, well, my story is as interesting as anybody else's. It's just, it's just different. And you kind of start interviewing people and realizing like, well, that's an interesting story. And it's a very American story. It's a very Long Island story or Boston story where I met or San Francisco where I worked or San Francisco story where I worked. And yet the people in it are very different and their stories are very different. So I do think being an outsider sometimes is very helpful to how you think Mm -hmm. about what stories can resonate. And those community stories are definitely ones that we want to get into later on in the podcast. But I want to maybe go back to your early years. You started at Harvard in 1984, um, left for a gap year that turned into many years and then returned um, while pregnant with your first child to earn your degree in English literature and culture in 2000. Um, And during that gap, you also started your television career first at WZTV in Boston. Um, How long were you gone and what was your intent when you took that uh, leave of absence? Yeah, I had been pre-med in college. In fact, I'd been pre-med since I was a teenager. So I did everything that would check the box for someone who was going to interview you for for med school, right? Which was, I worked as a candy striper. I worked in a nursing home. I worked in a pharmacy, right? And and then I got to med school. I was actually, then I got to my pre-med courses in college and I was actually taking organic chemistry with my sister, who's a surgeon now. So one of us made it, one of us did not. And I remember taking this class and she said to me, you always like memorize so much. Why do you do that? You should be able to deduce these formulas. Like if you're really a scientist, you'd understand the formula well enough to be able to deduce it, if that makes sense. And this formula was not this, but it was like Y equals MX plus B, the formula for a line. You know, you have an X, Y axis. B is a variable in space. Like, what else could it be? Like, you should understand a formula 
so well like that you get it and and I had no idea what she was talking about like I understood that that was a big gap for me I didn't understand for I could I have a very good ability to like memorize regurgitate and move on whether it's vocabulary words or whatever and it kind of dawned on me like wow maybe this is not for me and maybe it's not I'm not really passionate about it she would go on to be a researcher and a scientist and a physician. And I was like, I don't really know what I want to do. I'm not sure what I'm passionate about. So I left. And uh, and I remember my pain. People often ask me where my parents freaked out by it, which they really weren't. And I think a lot of that was because, I, I you know, there was, if you knew my parents, you would know there was no way I was going to like sit on the couch and eat Fritos all day like that. <laughs> it was not going to happen. I immediately had a job. I started working in Boston. I went and got a, uh, started working at a TV station. So I, I think they would have been upset if, if I was like, if they ran into me on the couch every day coming in and out of work, but they, they didn't, I was working right away. And I, I liked working in TV news. I didn't really know it very well, but the, I had an internship and I was actually working at Harvard summer school as well. So I had a housing uh, for the first part of it. And I was like, oh, I'm, I'm actually good at this. I, I like this. And my pre-med background helped me get my first job because I understood a lot about sort of how medicine worked. So it was very helpful kind of in the macro, but in, you know, but I, I decided really that like medical school would not be for me. I ended up weirdly being successful. I mean, successful in fetching coffee at WBC TV and then, and then helping write scripts, you know, and I could move up the ladder. And so by the time I was pregnant with my first child, which was in 2000, I guess, 1999 to two, he was born in 2000. I was, my best friend was my boss in, uh, at, uh, the Today Show. And she said, you know, you're, you're anchoring the weekend Today Show. You should go back to college. Once you have a kid, it's much harder. And also like you only work weekends for the most part, like you could actually make this work. So we kind of negotiated with Harvard. NBC was willing to pay for it, which was amazing for my last semester. And I was able to finish my degree. So it all kind of worked out. But really, it was Kim saying, you know, don't leave it unfinished. Once you have a baby, it all just gets much more complicated. And she was right about that. So I was really glad that I was able to finish up. You were actually one of six um in your household to go to Harvard. Did any of them take similar paths or were you the only one who kind of went down this trajectory of gap year in journalism? Yeah, I think all of us did different things. So for example, my sister, uh, my sister Maria went to undergrad at Harvard. Then she went to Yale Law School. You know, so she had a very straightforward path. And my sister Cecilia started off at Stanford, didn't really like California, moved, uh, transferred over to MIT, went to Harvard Law School. Um, and then my brother, Tony, was next and he went to Harvard and then Harvard Law School. And then I think he had a, a job in the law and he was like, eh, I don't love it. And so he kind of started his own business, not really doing law, informed by law, I would say. Uh, my sister Estella um, got her MD and got her, I think she got her PhD too, and her a master. You know, so everybody's kind of taken a different bit of a, a path. And I think my parents, who were very interested in education, were also very good at you know, like make sure you're doing what you want to be doing as you're going. I, they never were. I have some friends whose immigrant parents are very much like, you must be a doctor. And they were never like that. They were much more, you must be a good person. Like, don't be a jerk. And, and also make sure you're fulfilled because life is short and who wants to do something they don't want to do. So they never, I think we all took a little bit of different path. My brother who ended up going to Yale undergrad and then Harvard Med School 
he he had never taken any pre-med courses. So after he finished at Yale, he had to go, like, take a gap year to, I think he was studying politics, so he had to take a gap year or two to get all his pre-med requirements done. So we've all, I mean, you know, everybody kind of has a different different path. And I think that's life, frankly. I think, you know, if you're fortunate enough, I mean, he, he had a lot of loans that he had to repay eventually because med school is expensive. But I think if you're, you know, you're lucky enough that every step of the way, um, you know, you have good guidance and you're saying like, ugh, I don't want to do this. Ooh, I do want to do that. And it's actually one of the reasons that my husband and I run a very tiny foundation that sends girls to school because you need second chances and you need third chances, right? And you get to make stupid mistakes and you get to say, oops, I guess this was not the right decision. I need to go do something else. And to have, I was really lucky. Again, intact family, middle class, parents who had very solid, boring ass jobs, but, you know, meaning that you had no drama, right? There was no fear that someone was going to get fired. There was no fear of losing your job. It was just very dull all the time. And I think there's a real value in being in a, a very tight knit household that's just kind of boring. I think for so many of my generation listening to that, it's going to be helpful. And I'm wondering what your advice is when it comes to gap year. Do you think more young people now should consider taking a gap year or years? Oh, yeah. Oh, definitely. Oh, 100%. Um, I, I think, you, again, I think it has to be a gap year with a purpose. Like, literally, if you're going to sit on a couch and catch up on all the Netflix shows that you missed during the pandemic, like, then <laughs> don't do it because that's just a waste of time. But I think if you're going to take a class or get a job, any job, I think there's so much to be learned by kind of getting out there. When I went back to college for my last semester, I was so much smarter about how the world worked. Um, you know, I, I was actually, I had to write papers when I was covering the Elian Gonzalez story in Cuba, like, you know, and FedEx my papers to my TA, who was a solid 10 years younger than me. Um, so, you know, like I was a much more responsible and thoughtful human being. And I understand, understood what like community and neighborhood, meant, all things that as like a middle-class kid in Long Island, I really don't think I had a good, like I could wrap my head around. So I would say, yeah, take a gap year if it's worthwhile and and worthwhile can be you work in a restaurant and you save some money. It doesn't have to be I, you know, worked at this prestigious fill-in-the-blank firm. It just it just can't be I sat on the couch and did nothing because I don't think that that's, that's really a valuable way to spend your time. It's so interesting listening to you because I started out in occupational therapy and I Is dropped right? out. I did, but I dropped out, not for the reason you did. I dropped out because I realized I'd have to cut up a cadaver in my second year. <laughs> I, I was good at that. I was actually <laughs> good at that. I did not mind that. I'd done a number of stories on autopsies, and I was so into it. So it didn't bother me. That part was not bad. And people, some people had a lot of aversion to blood. Not me. Totally fine with it. It was just like the math and the formulas <laughs> seems to be important in science. <laughs> sounds like your gap year was very beneficial because it got you into journalism, which yeah. seems to have blasted. Mm -hmm. um, and I'm, was WBZ your first exposure to journalism? And was it by happenstance that you ended up there? Or was it, gee, I think I might be a good writer. I might be a good communicator. I should try some media. A little bit of both. Um, I, Harvard has a book called The Harvard Guide to Careers. And it's about this thick. Isn't it sound insane? And I went through it and I'm like, 
uh, physics professor, no. <laughs> Astronomer, no. Uh, and so I, I was looking at advertising media and I was like, oh, I think it might be interesting to try journalism. I'm a good writer. I was an English literature major. And so I, I knew what that would be, a, you know, that would be a strength of mine. I just sent out a bunch of applications. So happenstance was that at WBZ, they were looking for an intern at a show, a Spanish language show called Centro, which actually just went off the air. So I was one of their early interns, actually. And it wasn't journalism at all. I mean, it was it was covering a community, but it's not, it wasn't like a newsroom. And I love, so when I got a chance to run down to the newsroom to run errands or bring a message to someone or do this or that, I love the newsroom. And I love the newsroom because I love that it was like chaos and you had to kind of hit this deadline, but then it was over. Good show or bad show, great show or a horrifically terrible show. Like you start again tomorrow. And there was something very appealing about that. So it was a bit of happenstance because WBZ was looking for an intern in their Spanish language show of which I speak Spanglish. So I'm not sure how I got that internship. And I really speak Spanglish. So I'd never lie about that. And, uh, and I, you know, my internship was getting coffee and working on various shows. And I, I loved it. I really loved it. But I loved being down in the newsroom. And so when I I applied for a production assistant job in the newsroom and I had spent enough time in there that I was able to get that job. So I, I also was wondering, based on looking at a couple of your tweets, <laughs> whether your mother influenced you, because there's one uh, tweet that I'll, I'm going to read to you. It says, when my mom died, I found this letter to the editor among her possessions. She's calling out John Klein, the town supervisor, uh, in Long Island for his racist housing policies. I think it's from the 1970s. It inspires me to name names and call out BS. Don't live afraid. And it seemed to me that there must have been some lesson that you got from your mother that has helped you in journalism or may have guided you to journalism. My mom was so hardcore. You would love her. She would love you and you would love her. She And she would she would love you, Victor, because she loved young people and she loved to be like, let me tell you. <laughs> um, you know, my, my mom was very tough. And, and I used to think, one, she embarrassed me horribly, right? Because you had this black Latina lady in an all-white neighborhood who who would speak up and sing out loud. And the more you, you were embarrassed by her, the louder she got. And, and, you know, only in retrospect did I realize, like, she spent a lot of time fighting. Um, and I think, I think it's exhausting to fight all the time. But my mom really was that person. Like, to write an op-ed that calls out the town supervisor for being racist in the 1970s is insane. We live in, lived in an all-white neighborhood. Like, it just wasn't done. It just wasn't done. And my mom's own advice to us, to some degree, was like, put your head down. You know, it's a good public school. You don't need to date anybody here. You're here to get a good education. Put your head down. You know, mind your business. But I think she also was just very aggressive about calling out the things that she thought were wrong. And so, yeah, my mom had great, crazy, my mom was also nuts. I mean, she had great advice, you know. So a lot of her advice was, if you wanted to find a man, you should go to church. Why was I not, why was I not going to daily mass? Um, uh, you know, uh, I was named after the Virgin Mary. My name is Maria de la Soledad Teresa Marquette O'Brien, which is roughly the Virgin Mary, as you can imagine. But she also was kind of hardcore about, you know, um, being self-sufficient and, 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 you know, if people didn't believe in you, moving on. And if something was going wrong, you know, suck it up. And 
if you were sad about something, take 24 hours and cry about it, like full on boohoo in bed, eating Ben and Jerry's, you know, and then hour 25, get your butt out of bed and come up with a list and like, where are we going? Because to me, at least, that was very much like the immigrant mentality. There was just, you know, there was no laying in bed like, oh, I just don't know. You know, it was, you can be sad, but now today we need to move forward. And it was a very helpful way to grow up. My parents were also, I ended up when I was working at CNN, I did a lot of coverage on race and I would meet so many young women of color who were biracial like me. My dad was white. My mom was black. And they were so conflicted about it. It was so interesting. My, my parents never, I mean, my parents were like, you're black. Like, you just are. And so my mom used to say, don't let anybody tell you you're not black. Don't let anybody tell you you're not Latina. And I'm like, I'm in an all-white neighborhood. <laughs> no one's saying that, crazy lady. Like, they're saying the opposite of that. You know, can I touch your hair? Whatever. So I used to think she was literally insane until I started reporting on race. And then people would say, well, why do you get to tell that story? You know, who are you? What's your background? So my parents, you know, I, I really, I think it was very developmentally helpful to kind of have a very strong sense of who you are, if that makes sense. And I always felt so badly for young women who would say, I just don't know who I am. I'm like, you're black. Look at you. You're black. I don't care if your white dad raised you. And you're like, you are a young, gorgeous black woman. And that's cool. Be happy with it and move forward. I never had that um sense of like, I'm lost and I don't know who I am. And I'm so grateful for my parents and really my mom for being like, this is it. This is who we are. Good upbringing for sure. So let's go back to at WBEZ. It's a local television station. And Victor and I have often talked about local news and its importance and how often it is ignored and not Given it's a real resurgence now. Local news is doing great. Local news is doing great. T tell us what you think in, in terms of, one, in terms of career, is it the right place to start? But also its importance in this media field that we now have and why we need local news, not just yeah. national. Yeah, journalism right now, I think, is a mess. And national political journalism is a big, giant mess. And local news is really seeing a resurgence. And I think a lot of uh, news organizations are very much paying attention to serving their community. I mean, it sounds almost cheesy. But for me, when I covered Hurricane Katrina, it sort of dawned on me like, oh, this is not a story about a storm, right? This is about failures of, of, of helping people humanely. And, and, and my job was to like, how do we get information out? How do we bring context to this story? And how do we tell this story? And I think local news has long done that. You know, here's a story that affects our people right here. And our job is to serve them here. And I, I always think that there was a real clarity in working at WBZ that I didn't sometimes have in cable news because in cable news, it often felt like you were chasing the drama of a story. Um, so local news is, is, is really important and it's, it's, it really encourages me. I mean, we've lost a lot of local reporting. Newspapers are really challenged right now, um, but I, I think it's, it's really, really important. And I think there's a real resurgence certainly in local TV news um, because I think they're really doing a good job serving their, their audience. Uh, I loved working at, at WBZ and it taught me a lot about like, how do you tell a story well and thoughtfully and clearly, you know, there's, and I would, my advice would be to young people who are looking for jobs in journalism is take any job that's going to pay you 
cash money to do the job. Like, you know, early on, you don't need to be picky. You can just say, I want to learn. And I want to learn at a place that's going to teach me, whether it's a big place, I worked at networks, whether it's a small place. I think you just have to get in there, kind of keep your mouth shut and really figure out the lay of the land and figure out like, what can I learn here? Um, some jobs you're in, you realize like, wow, I, I can't learn anything. When I was in local news at KRON TV, I wanted to learn how to anchor. My boss at NBC, Bob Bazell, said, you know, you should learn how to anchor because uh, MSNBC was just starting and, and there were opportunities in newsrooms if news broke because there were no cable stations yet or ones that were connected, like NBC didn't have its cable channel. That meant that whoever was the highest ranking correspondent had to go sit in front of the camera and say, you know, so-and-so has been shot or this plane has crashed or whatever. I mean, it was terrifying. If you didn't anchor, imagine someone saying, Jill, you know, guess what? Sit in front of the camera. You're now anchoring for the next three hours. So he said, get experience. And so in San Francisco, I asked them if I could learn how to anchor. And they said, no, we got a lot of women. We're not interested. And, and it was the first time probably in my career, and it would happen a few more times, where when you realize you're surrounded by people who don't see growth for you, that you kind of have to be like, Thank you. Thank you for the clarity. Now I need to get my resume together and think about where I'm going to go. But there's always opportunities to learn. And then it becomes clear, like the opportunity to learn has stopped. And now I have to go to another place to make sure I can keep growing. I always thought about my career as like growing my skill set so that when you made a move, you were a little bit terrified because you had sold them on a thing that you were not really sure you could do. <laughs> sure, I can do that. You know? And so I, I think that that's always the goal, to keep growing your skill set. And anytime you're in a place where people are like, nope, you're good, like right where you are is where you need to stay. I mean, who wants that? Exactly. Uh, and I love that they said to you, no, we have a lot of women. I only <laughs> wish that I had ever heard that in any place I ever worked. Yeah, um, yeah. It's, it hasn't. But anyway, you did then move from local to national. You went to NBC and eventually to MSNBC. And then you have a, a long career in many other networks as well. And when you left local news and went to a network, uh, originally, I think it was with an, a local affiliate of, a, of NBC. Is there anything that you wish you had known? Or are you glad that you just went there and took the chance? Oh my God, I'm so glad the internet really did not exist. It just started. So I think social media was not a thing at that moment because that, I mean, the pressure on people to be new and to mess up and just, I mean, brutal, brutal. Um, no, I, I think there's a real value sometimes in being naive and because and, if you knew more, you'd probably be more afraid. But by being, you know, my very first live shot, I was, um, I was in a bar. <laughs> they sent me to cover the San Francisco Giants in a bar uh, game, watching, watching the game with other people who are also not going to the game. We were all in a bar. And I, I didn't realize that you should never, ever set up a live shot where people have access to your backside. Like, I'd never done a live shot before. I'd been with them like three days, and they had promised I wouldn't have to do a live shot for the first couple of weeks. I'd been a producer at NBC. I hadn't been on air. So my first on-air thing... I realized just as I'm, and everyone's, you're in a bar. So everyone's drinking and they're drunk and they're watching a game. I, literally, I had no idea until I started talking and I was like, everybody's really drunk. And boy, are they standing close to me. And oh, this man has just pinched me in the rear end. I mean, you know, like obviously now, duh, you know, because those big lights, you know, people gather up behind you and you never would do that again. But yeah, I mean, 
I think there is a value to learning things and not being, you know, to kind of figuring it out on your own and navigating your own path. When I worked at CNN, for example, when I was new at CNN, I had just had my twin boys. So I'd been there maybe a year or so. And I had four kids under four. And I was sent to go cover the tsunami, Southeast Asian tsunami. And I went to go do a special, but I was also anchoring the morning show. And the producer I was signed to when I got to Thailand said to me something like, I know you're a big star for CNN, but I need to tell you, if you can't hack this, I'm going to put you on a plane home. I was like, I am 38 years old. Like, I mean, it sounds like I was 14, you know, I was so upset. And I I remember calling back to my husband and crying because I'm a big crier when I get upset. (laughs) I cry all the time. And, And he gave me great advice. He was like, listen, I don't think there's anything you can do except put your head down and do the gig. Like, just do it. What What are your options? What do you do? Call your bosses and say someone's being mean to me? And, and, you know, and it was a really good moment to kind of like learn how to navigate through really crummy experiences. It turned out we ended up doing the special. And because Thailand is 12 hours ahead, I could do this. I could shoot for the special and then come back to the hotel and shoot my show, which went from 6 to 9 p.m., which is 6 to 9 a.m. in New York. And, and so I was doing double duty and it went very well. And, and, you know, I think his advice was exactly right. Like sometimes the only option is to kind of hit a home run. Like you can talk a good game, but you just got to do the work of it. And I thought that was very good advice. Sounds like you were an early Ali Velshi who's doing exactly that now where he's overseas covering the war and anchoring. Yeah, he's amazing. And he's, you know, he's a great example, actually. He's just good at his job. And he doesn't think of it as like, I do this and I don't do that. Ali has all, we work together uh, at CNN and he's very smart, but he's also like, he just does stuff. Like he's just good at just working. And some people like just put the work in and he's a very good example of, he just puts the work in. Let's maybe talk more about your time at CNN um, as a co-anchor of American Morning, which was their flagship morning program. And I'm wondering specifically about whether you see a difference between nightly news programs at cable networks and daytime news shows. Yeah, for sure. Uh, It wasn't the same as it is now. Now the nightly news programs are very opinion heavy. It really wasn't that way when I started at CNN in 2003. Um, they had a pretty strong standards and practices wall. So if you started spouting your opinion, it just, that just was not a thing back then. And I think today those shows are really 99.9996% opinion. I always like doing morning shows versus evening shows because I think in my mind, I love the idea of how you would frame your interviews was always, good morning, here's what you missed overnight. And it really helped me figure out, like, because I would fill in a lot. Anderson did an evening show. Other people did evening shows. And it was much harder because the news had, you know, like, it just kept rolling through. But I love being kind of the big morning show because we were starting, we were the starting point for everybody starting their day. And it was very, it just in my head helped me think about how to frame my questions and what stories we wanted to cover and how we wanted to inform people. And back to that idea of, like, This job is about educating and informing people and giving them some clarity in what's happening. By the time you get to the 99th time the story has been told and this guest has actually been on 68 times, for me, I've always found that a bit challenging. Do you think that model of having more opinionated news shows at the evening times is a good model or a bad one? 
I don't think it's interesting for me personally. Uh, and I think, I think it's, I think you live by the sword, you die by the sword, exhibit A, Chris Cuomo. Uh, I think that that was a real mistake in a lot of ways. Chris interviewing his brother was a journalistic no-no. It's just not done. No more than I would interview my own brother who would be like, why am I on TV? But, but you know, if he were the governor, right? everyone would say, it's just not done that way. The way you would do that is you would say, you know, Jane Doe will do the interview with the governor and then I will debrief her on my show. Like, you know, there's a distance so that there's real journalism. So people, you don't give the appearance of impropriety. And I think what they did was not just have Chris interview his brother, but they kind of had a dog and pony show about talking about mom and this. And it was just silliness, again, around a story that was quite important. You know, they weren't talking about Groundhog Day and it was a funny moment, you know, once a year. It was like, we're talking about a pandemic and people dying in a pandemic. I don't think this should be a dog and pony show. But, you know, you live by the sword, you die by the sword. And I think, I'm sure in retrospect, people think like, well, that was a big mistake, on a, you know, in a lot of ways. So I personally am not a big fan of opinion because sometimes I think the reporters play it up in order to come across as tough or come across as, you know, they push back hard when actually I just want to understand the story. The show that I do now, for matter of fact, has been kind of interesting. We don't do opinion at all, but it's been interesting because we have found that viewers want to understand things. Like, can you explain how Watergate, Jill was on our show, how Watergate is like what we're hearing today, right? They actually want context. They don't need Soledad O'Brien to give her their opinion. I mean, they can certainly go to my Twitter page. I give a lot of opinions, but I think they want to understand an issue from the people who had important, like central roles in it and people who are experts. And that's what I want. I like, I want to hear from experts. Experts I might agree with, experts I might disagree with, but they have a certain level of expertise. And I think we've really seen kind of the death of experts in a way where, you know, anybody, you know, I'm a mom and here's what I think about the global pandemic. <laughs> like, yeah, well, uh, come back to me when you're an epidemiologist. I'm happy to hear from you. So I think that's been very problematic. Um, we have found our, some of our best shows have been, you know, what's the First Amendment? A deep dive into gerrymandering. Uh bringing solar power to Puerto Rico. We had millions of viewers for an entire show that looked at how Puerto Ricans in the wake of Hurricane Maria had decided that they actually were going to kind of save themselves the next time around because the power grid is so iffy there. And they were going to be responsible for bringing their own solar power. That show did great. I can't imagine going into a news director and being like, I've got a story. Solar power in Puerto Rico, like it wouldn't happen. But the stories that we do usually cut out the politicians and we kind of go straight to the people. So we don't really deal with the middlemen talking about, you know, here's the legislation I'm pitching. It's more like here are people and their stories. And I have found that when you present it that way, you don't have as much partisan yelling, right? Like if you're talking about insulin and how expensive it is, it doesn't really matter your politics. I mean, it, it's expensive for everybody. So we have found that it, it, it's not two people yelling at each other. You're an idiot, Congressman. You're an idiot, Senator. It's, it's like, let's explain why these prices are what they are. Let's talk about the housing crisis and how this person is dealing with it. And I have found that, again, focusing on journalism as explainers and helping people understand an issue so much more valuable than two politicians who are clearly, you know, trying to raise money when they run the clip on social media 
it, it just feels like such a big waste. So yeah, I'm not a big fan of opinion in any way, shape or form in, uh, in the newscast. Mm -hmm. And it really allows the audience to understand the story better, like you said, and go beyond those five, 10 minute kind of segments on cable news. And I'm wondering, like, so do, first, do you think that there should be more long form pieces on cable news? Is that possible? And second, do you think my generation can handle long form pieces? Yes. You're, first of all, your generation definitely can because you people screen Netflix and binge. <sighs> so uh, clearly, uh, you know, it, it, long form pieces are just expensive. They're just like, here's the here's the issue. They don't want to pay for that. If I if I do a contract with a lawmaker so that they're an official talking head, I'm paying them maybe $100,000 a year, right? And now they're on every show. So for a million bucks, I can fill my day, day in and day out. You know, it doesn't cost me that much money. For me to go shoot a good story is probably at least $25,000, you know, between crews and travel and time and talent. Like, it's expensive. So it's a lot, you know, it's a lot more money. So you're really investing more money. And so, sure, networks could do it. CNN made a big, massive profit. Fox makes big, massive profits. It requires reporting. It requires money. And you know, sometimes people don't want to pay it. So they don't. But, you know, that's really the, the issue. I, I have found that young people love podcasts. Young people love documentaries. Young people love 12-part Netflix series. Young people love, you know. So I, I don't, I, there was this myth. You're probably a little too young to realize it. But there was a show called 48 Hours. And the whole idea behind 48 Hours was like fast cuts that now everybody needed everything. No, no, no edit could be longer than somewhere between three and eight seconds. So it was always like, choo, 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 squish pan, you know, and like that's what people needed to see because you wouldn't, your audience would be bored if you didn't have that. And you actually find now, like good storytelling is really what compels people. And good storytelling about anybody. There's also a myth. Black people want to watch black people. Latinos want to watch Latinos. It's not true. People want to understand a good story. And we see so many examples of that. But yet those myths seem to persist. I hope you're right. Um, but there is one other thing that seems to sell and make money for at least Fox News, and that is disinformation. And conflict. Really, it's disinformation wrapped in, in conflict, right? Yeah, although there's no conflict on Fox. They have only one opinion, uh, it seems to me. And, and a lot of it is just, it's certainly not based on what I would consider facts. And there is only one set of facts. I, I actually remember back when there was agreed upon facts on every network. There were only three back then. And they all had the same facts. Politicians might disagree about the policy implications, but there was only one set of facts. And now we're so far from that where those people who watch MSNBC believe A, and the people who watch Fox believe the exact opposite. So what is it that we can do in the media environment to bring facts back into existence, to get all Americans to be able to evaluate what is true and make decisions based on truth. Yeah, it's a really big problem. Um, a guy, I sit on the board at Rand Corporation, and Michael Rich, our CEO, wrote a great book that's called Truth Decay. And it really looks at, I mean, Rand does a lot of research, right? So they, and they're basically fact finders and, and they do all this research around policy. So he writes uh, along with Jennifer Kavanaugh, who's his co-author, they write about 
seeing this decay in this idea of like there are facts. We might disagree on implications. We might even disagree on issues, but there are certain undeniable facts and we're moving away from that. That's the $64,000 question. And I don't know. I mean, it's done very intentionally. It's not like, oops, somehow they keep stumbling on misinformation and disinformation and they just don't realize it. It's, it's done with tremendous intention. And I think, I think the conflict is in having a, a boogeyman, right? Having you, you want to have people, um, even if the conflict isn't within two people fighting, it's a sense of conflict constantly, right? The world is changing. It's different. It's upsetting. It's never, let's explain this. It's always this idea of, you know, it could have, is there a, a pedophilia ring in the basement of a pizzeria that doesn't have a basement kind of thing? And it's, it's insane, but you're at a really crazy time. So I don't know how to answer that because I don't know how to, I don't know how to fix it. It's not, it's not unintentional. I think you would have a better chance of fixing it if it were just accidental, if it were just mistakes or or misinformation. But it's it's disinformation, and there are people who benefit from it, and there are politicians who benefit from it tremendously. So there's no real incentive to say, you know what, we gotta, we really need to buckle down and fix this. And there are platforms that you know. Let me promise you that Facebook benefits from having big streams of disinformation, and they platform it all the time. So. I think there too, once people benefit from something, it makes it very hard to end it. I, I'm sort of hopeful that some of the lawsuits, the uh, Smartmatic and Dominion lawsuits, which could cost Fox dearly for perpetuating lies that they knew were lies, um, could actually pull them back from the brink of continuing to be a propaganda tool for Russia. I mean, right now you have... Um, Tucker Carlson being broadcast in Russia because he's very helpful to their cause. He's spouting their propaganda. And you've, you've not been quiet. You've been quite outspoken in criticizing uh, CNN and MSNBC. And so tell us a little more about your criticism and what you think they could do to improve. Yeah, and, and all networks, right? I mean, to some degree, I, I had the chance to testify before Congress, which interestingly, I mean, you, Jill, done a lot of testifying, but I have not. Um, probably a good thing. Uh, you can't move when you do the remote test. Like you have to sit in your chair for four hours, which was a lot. <laughs> um, but they, we did a, a something on misinformation and, and disinformation, and it was a really. I mean, I was very interested in taking part in it. But at the end of the day, people benefit from it. Right. People who know better. So, I mean, Fox does it for sure. But but CNN platforms, liars, you know, they give them and they, they don't frame them because they, they benefit from having them on the air. And again, I think it's because it gets into this dynamic of of conflict. I know anchors love to give the sense that they're tough when they're challenging someone. And in many cases, they're not very good at challenging somebody. But I, my basic rule of thumb is if someone intentionally lies to me, they don't come back on the air. Every politician is going to spin, is going to exaggerate, right? But I'm talking about an absolute lie to your face. I just don't have them back on. If someone lies, they don't get to, you know, you do not, and you also do not need to give a live mic to people. I, I don't know where this sense of like, everybody gets a voice. It's like, no, we make decisions day in and day out about who gets airtime and who does not every day. The New York Times likes to claim, you know, we don't make the news, we just cover it. It's like, right, but you make decisions. It's a zero-sum game. There's a certain amount of space, 
and you make decisions every day. This is important, goes here. This is not important, we don't have space for it, goes over there, right? Like we all do, every newsroom makes that decision. So you don't have to give everybody airtime live. You can say, this person's a newsmaker, they're very important. However, they're often full of shit. So what we're gonna do is we're gonna interview them, we're gonna tape it, and then we're gonna make sure that what they're telling us is actually factually, factually accurate, right? And they can have opinions, you know, but, but when they start to lie, we actually are not gonna put that on TV because we don't put you know, liars on TV. And I, I think, you know, and CNN does that as well as, as well as MSNBC and as well as, you know, Fox does it as a, as a business model. So there are many things you can do. The problem is it's intentional. It's intentional. It's, it's not an error. It's not a mistake. It's not a, oh, I didn't realize he was lying. It's, I understand this is a person who doesn't think the election was valid, and yet I'm going to give them six minutes of airtime on this Sunday morning on Meet the Press. That's a decision. That's what they've decided to do. And, and you've raised an issue which um, has been of concern, which is Ukraine and what's happening there is of critical importance, and we need to know. We need to see. But um, there also needs to be some balance. And so there's been criticism that there hasn't been enough attention paid to conflicts in other areas, the Middle East, Africa, uh, the world. Hmm, what's the difference? Hmm, let me think for a minute. Hmm. Oh, right. The brown people seem to get less coverage than all those reporters who are telling us that these people are Europeans and they're not used to, you know, they're civilized people. You know, the funny thing about all of that, and I think overall the reporting has truly been excellent, but there are some standout terrible people uh, who, right, were informing us how these people were civilized. These white people that you're seeing, they're not used to this stuff because they're civilized. That's a quote. I'm not making that up, right? That's you know, that there are certain people for whom this is just so stressful because they're not used to this stuff, where those people over there, if they're African and if they're Middle Eastern, well, they're basically savages and, you know, they get what they get. And so, yeah, listen, I, unfortunately, I've been around the block enough to know that, you know, racism isn't really embedded. I was embarrassed for these reporters because you, you actually see it, right? You're like, wow, you are telling us I got to be careful with what I say. And then you're not very careful with what you say around, you know, who you think is valuable and who do you think gets airtime? We just we just finished a doc series that's uh, streaming on HBO Max right now called Black and Missing. And it was exactly this. Like, why are, you know, the black women who are missing are just not seen as compelling stories, but the young, pretty white women who are missing are seen as very important stories to the point where the nation will go in on a hunt for that young woman, which, by the way, is good. I'm glad that people are helping search for missing girls. My question is always, what is it in newsrooms that people say, yeah, but this person, I don't know, not so interesting to me, but this person, wow, this is interesting. I mean, it was Gwen Ifill who coined the term you know, a uh, missing white girl syndrome, right? This idea that, you know, some people are more valuable. And I think newsrooms consistently show us, and sometimes the reporters actually tell you in their live shot, like, these people are valuable, right? They're not savages. They're, they just aren't used to this kind of stuff. And it's, it's very, um, of course, no one should be used to it. And everybody's, everybody's crisis and everybody's chaos and everybody's trauma, which you're seeing unfolding, should be covered because they're human beings, 
I just, it, I find it very upsetting and, and very challenging. So I hope everyone will watch your HBO um, documentary and we will put its name up on our, uh, sh- in our show notes. I appreciate so, that. Thank you. Yeah, we just won a big award. We won an Independent Spirit Award the other day. Uh, my husband, who's not in TV, was like, is this a big one or is it not a big one? I'm like, this is a big one. <laughs> and an NAACP. Yes. Yeah, an NAACP award as well for our directors. Wow. So, yeah, it's it's been, it's a really, it's a really wonderful doc series. Uh, the doc series is called Black and Missing, and it focuses on two women who started the Black and Missing Foundation to literally help communities of color figure out how to get the attention of the media and of law enforcement, because they're often ignored when people in those communities go missing. Wow, that's amazing. Um, so against the back th- backdrop that we've been talking about, you're actively working to help reform how news is presented, and you haven't been afraid to point out the misinformation and bad framing of cable news organizations. Um, I'm wondering, what have been some of your favorite documentaries to work on at Starfish, which is the media company that you now own? Oh, thank you. Yes. You know, I have always really enjoyed projects where you get to tackle kind of current day issues. So I don't know if you guys have been watching... um, I think it's on it's on HBO. It's um, The White Lotus. Have you seen that, that show? Have you seen it? Oh, my gosh. It's amazing. You have to watch it. But what's great about it is that they, they really have a very nuanced approach to, like, modern-day conversations about race and class and have and have not. And it's a really creative way to do it. It's very interesting. It's not luxury or boring. And so I think for our docs, some of them are just really fun to do. We did a, a doc that uh, is on a Discovery uh, called Prison Breaker about a guy who has literally broken out of state and federal uh, prison. He's now in Supermax. And we and every time he would break out of a prison, he would um, FOIA his case so he could figure out what he had done wrong for the next time. <laughs> So crazy. Um, and so telling his story and he, and he would videotape himself on the run in Canada. Thank you for my documentary. We needed that video. Uh, and so uh, we tell the story of how he really went from from a, a really promising life to be killing a guy and then going on the run uh, and, wow. and escaping from prison. And, and, and he was kind of it's one of those cases where you have a person who's almost a genius in the bad thing that they do. Like you hate to say a genius, but like in terms of breaking out, he's a, he is a genius. Um, so we did that project. Um, we did a really interesting project uh, that called uh, called Disrupt and Dismantle, which was a, a great way to look at explain to people like what's environmental racism, which I will confess even I didn't fully understand. Um, when we started, you know, people often will talk about it. I'm like, great, I don't exactly get that. So we wanted to talk about, you know, environmental racism and just uh, and different issues um, that and who's working to disrupt and dismantle some of these systems that were in place. So, for example, I went to it wasn't outside of Dallas. This woman said that she had a, um, a mountain of shingles that she called it Shingle Mountain in her backyard in Dallas. Um, people had started dumping, illegal dumping of shingles. And she's like, I have a mountain of shingles. Now, I assumed it was kind of like a mountain of shingles is like, like that, like a you know, big giant pile. 10 stories high. Oh my gosh. <laughs> like a hotel size of shingles. I pulled up on her house. I'm like, oh my gosh. 
and, and it had all been illegally dumped. And we wanted to tell the story about how people in certain communities were just subjected to illegal dumping, even when the, you know, the, the, some of the politicians were like, we didn't know. I'm like, really? It's kind of the size of a 10-story building. I don't believe you. Um, so I've always felt like I've had great opportunities to do stories that are, I think are important, that I think are compelling. Um, they've got to obviously be entertaining and beautifully shot. But it's nice when you work for yourself, you get to pick and choose what you get to do. And you also get to pick and choose the people you work with. And I, I do think for younger people, sucking it up is a very good skill. You will get a lot of opportunity and you'll learn a lot. You know, if you keep your mouth shut and plow forward, there's a lot to be learned. But when you get to my age, which is now 56, to be able to say, here are the projects I want to do. Here are the people I want to work with. Here's the quality of work that I want. Here's what I want to do. You know, here's how much I want to travel. It's really um, refreshing and freeing to work on those those projects. We want to talk more about the um, Disrupt and Dismantle documentary series. But before we do so, I'm just wondering, how do you make those, those decisions? You talked about the intentionality of cable news organizations. How do you do it at uh, Starfish? Yeah, you know, a lot of it is what's funded. I mean, there's a lot of things that I'd love to do. And they're like, no, nobody wants to pay for that. So, nope, you're not doing it. And sometimes you're not doing it now. But we run a production company. And in order to be a viable, functioning production company, you need to have a good grip on what are the stories that people are interested in? Who are the buyers in the market? What do they want to see? And, and how do they want to tell their story? And who's their audience? You know, So you can't just go in with, here, this is important to me. I mean, people... They'll be nice, but they'll laugh you out of a room. <laughs> like, good for you. You should definitely go pay for that and go do it yourself. Um, if you want to sell to HBO or you want to sell to Discovery or you want to sell to Peacock, you need to make a good, compelling argument about content that you have, a story you want to tell. And usually for documentaries and series, right, it's all about access. What do I have? What do I? Have? What insight and what access do I have in this story that makes it worth doing? Who, do, who can I bring to the table? It can't just be my take on an issue that everybody else is covering. So, you know, and then you have partnerships. So you constantly are saying, they'll call you up and say, hey, we're looking for this. Hey, we're looking for a game show. Hey, are you, do you have anything in this space? We're looking for, you know, a young person doing this kind of thing. And so you're just constantly, we have a great development team, but you really invest a lot in your development team, even though, you know, you're not necessarily you're working all the time, but you know, until you sell something, you're kind of just working without without selling anything, and you have to figure out what are those things that really are going to hit. So let's look forward a little bit. Years ago, you wrote the big, the next big story. Um, what are some of the biggest stories on the horizon that aren't getting uh, the coverage they deserve? Man. You know, I think there's, it's been interesting because I know a lot of ways, I think critical race theory has gotten too much coverage because it's not a thing. And I think that a lot of people covering some of these stories are very uneducated. Uh, I know when the New York Times did one of its first reporting on critical race theory, they quoted a lot of people. It would be like, it would be like covering an issue and just qu quoting random people on it. You know, well, I know Einstein said E equals MC squared, but here's how I feel about it. Like you just, you know, and, and the same thing happened in critical race theory, like, you know, angry mom quoted. I mean, it's so crazy. Um, as opposed to it's an actual, you know, graduate level course with reading and intellectual heft behind it. Um, so I thought there was a lot of failure in that. And some of that was because you had people who, who were buying into this agenda, really a right-wing agenda of, you know, making something 
uh, of selling it as a, a, a terrible thing and that it even existed and it was happening in schools, which we all know it's not. So um, I, I think I'm very interested in, in documentaries that talk about race and class and access. We did a story the other day, for a matter of fact, that was just fascinating, that looked at a guy who's not Latino, who's from San Diego, and he's moved to Mexico and commutes to his job. He works full time, but he cannot afford housing in San Diego because the market is insane as it is in many cities now. And so he commutes in from Mexico to his job in America. And he's American who is not fluent in Spanish every day. And so I have always found it very interesting to look at this kind of phenomenon, right? Understand what's happening in the country. And again, it's not a debate. We don't have him fighting anybody. We're kind of trying to understand the issues and, and what's happening to try to solve some of those challenges. So before we run out of time, let's go back to um, the documentary Disrupt and Dismantle. And it, it actually also looked at uh, a, a deep dive into structural racism. Mm. And that relates to both what you're talking about, CRT, and um, <laughs> day we're recording this is also part of the time when uh, Judge Katanji uh, Jackson is being questioned. And Grilled. I use the term Grilled. loosely. Yeah. Yes, I mean, there's and other she's words. So, and she's doing such a great job. It's yeah, actually kind of funny. Great she's job, like, but she's smack, also being accused smack, of being responsible smack. for CRT. And yeah. uh, so it's like, it's gotten so out of hand. Um, and, and this also fits into, of course, the Black Lives Matter movement. Um, which has been inspirational to the nation. And I just wonder if we're doing enough. Uh, does it feel like social justice issues are only getting focused on in times of elections and that we aren't continuing to do what we need to do? Is there something that we should be focusing on? What can we do? Yeah, you know, I think the, the narrative is very messy, right? And that is and that is because there's an agenda behind it. it you, you'll notice nobody cares about the caravan from Honduras the minute the midterms are over. And I just wish the New York Times sometimes would like start recognizing that and, and, and understanding that like the caravan, which is on the front page, happens every year and disappears. And it's not a big deal, but they just can't, they just kind of buy into this rhetoric, uh, which is disappointing. And the same thing with cancel culture, which I think is complete bullshit. And also this idea of, you know, CRT, just ridiculousness. But but media, right, kind of elevates these conversations. And I, I think that's been really problematic. Real racial justice to me is, is around hiring, housing, you know, opportunities. And I think a lot of that work is being done in the, the courts, right? It's about really making sure we're challenging redlining. It's about really making sure that people who've committed to hire more people of color are actually doing that. I, I thought in the wake, a lot of the commitments in the wake of George Floyd, and some were, were complete BS, but a bunch of them were not. And a number of organizations who said that they wanted to diversify suddenly realized there were HBCUs or Latino serving organizations. And they're like, wow, you know what? If you would like to find some Latinos, maybe go there. There, They exist over there. And, and I think also just blunt conversations about what do we want our company to look like? What is our role in, in doing this? And I thought that was good. I mean, and I, so I, I guess I'm, I never really think it's going to come from politicians. I always think it's going to come from organizations and people who want to try to figure it out and, and, and 
you know, really provide solutions, I've seen some real change. And I've seen a lot of people, you know, try to hold themselves accountable to, you know, what they want to do in our organization. I've been on enough shoots. And now when I go on a shoot, I'm like, we need to have 50% women and 50% people of color. I'm going to leave it up to whoever's booking the, like, but, this, and if you can't figure that out, we will just push the, the shoot down a little bit. And you know what? The minute you actually raise that, people are like, oh, okay. <laughs> and that's what, you know, it's, it's the same thing as saying we need to have three cameras or we need to have these kinds of lights. Or, you know, you just say, if we're doing stories about a thing, like this is what our company values are. And so if you would like me to work with you, here's what I need. And I have found nobody pushes back. People are like, okay, and we can be a 600-pound gorilla to make that happen because those are my values. And if you want to work with me, then that's what we're going to see. I, uh, I I agree. I I just think we need to have more of a focus on it year round. Yeah, hundred percent. If we're talking about criminal justice reform in general, that's something that does take a lot of work of a lot of community groups, but it also takes the involvement of politicians because they pass the laws that are going to ultimately make a difference. They fund in a way that makes a difference. So I'm hoping that we can do more. You're a hundred percent right. Yeah, hundred percent right. Yeah. Well, this has been such a fascinating conversation. Just one last question that we always love to end on. Um, what is your advice to young people? I know we've talked a lot about career and, and, and what you've been through, but what is your parting advice for any young person, maybe those who are interested in becoming someone like you in journalism? You know, uh, for me, I think it's always about, like, what do I do well and what do I need to work on? When I started reporting, and I was not good, I would have a list of three things. My husband actually was very helpful, and he would say, you know, you just got to kind of break go back to blocking and tackling. Like I was so nervous during live shots. I couldn't remember, you know, generally it was three things. Soledad O'Brien, I'm standing live in front of the such and such. Later today, such and such. But up next, such and such, right? Three sentences. <laughs> oh my God, I was a disaster. You know, and his whole thing was like, stop overthinking it. Just, you know, fall back to blocking and tackling. Just give us the basics just until you get better. And I, I really think, so I kept a running list. What are the three things that I'm working on at any time? Every, I mean, keep a little list with me. Like these are the three things that I'm working on. And those things can be work skills. They can also be life skills, like show up on time or remember to write thank you notes to people who do you a favor or, you know, double check your grammar when you're sending notes to your bosses because you look like an idiot when you have typos. Um, you know, and so I think it's really helpful to just constantly be working on yourself, not in a, a mean way, you know, nobody loves me more than me. I'm not, you know, I, I don't think it's like self-bashing is not the way to do it. I think it's about like, how do I improve? How do I take little steps to make myself better? And I have personally found, I'm a big list maker, but I personally found like a little running list of I'm working on this. I'm, my live shots, I'm working on this. My life, I'm working on this. And then you get it, you cross it off, you put something else in its place, just your three things. I found that very helpful. So I have a do it now folder. <laughs> which is, I just, it's just labeled D-I-N, and I know it's the things that I have to get done in pretty fast order. Yep. And uh, mm -hmm. one of those is to ask you, so I'm known for my pins. Uh, I have a hashtag on Starfish, Twitter. Starfish, I love it. So did you notice mine for today? Of course. Okay, I just wanted of to make course. sure because it was special I love all you. your pins, which is why my mom would have loved you. My mom passed away a couple of years ago, but she would have loved you because she loved pins. Oops. Me too. I've loved them since high school and will always wear them, but I was glad to find a starfish to wear for you today. 
Thank you so much for being with us today. I've enjoyed getting to know you a little better. I know our audience is going to love not only getting to know you, but watching some of the documentaries that you have made and will make as we go forward. Thank you so, so much. Thank you for doing that. Yeah, thank you thank for you having so me. Really appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you. That was such a great conversation with Soledad. We hope you enjoyed it as much as we did. We'll be back next week with another episode of iGen Politics, wherever you follow your podcasts. So be sure to follow us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, wherever you follow your podcasts, and leave us a five-star review and rating there. We're also on YouTube, so if you watch us on YouTube, subscribe there, like us there, and be sure to click on the bell for our weekly notifications. 